Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Conservative. Constitutional. It's the Andrew Cooper Writer Show. Keeping you informed on what's going on right here in Kentucky. And welcome, everybody, to the Andrew Cooper Writer Show. Happy Black Friday. Hopefully, everybody had a swell and grand Thanksgiving. I know I did. Some family came in from out of town, sister and brother-in-law, some my nephews, as well as over at the parents' house there, having a grand old Thanksgiving. I hope some family came into town for you, said hello to you. You know, I had a funny occurrence with my nephew. Uh, he is, um, let's see, he's, he's, he's about five, five and, uh, at a funny occurrence, he was, uh, talking to me, uh, and he, and he said something to me, uh, in a funny way, <laughs> he, he goes, well, I don't know what him does, but it's fun. And I said, I don't know what him does. That's a interesting way of saying that. And I mentioned it to my sister. I said, wow, uh, who's, who's in your house? Talking like that, you know, we've, we moved out of the hills a, a generation ago. <laughs> who's in the, who's in there talking like that? And she goes, oh, well, he's just struggling a little bit with his pronouns. And I said, oh, I understand. Um, it doesn't get much easier. It doesn't get much easier. And it certainly doesn't. It's wait until he finds out about Zay, Zer, Zing, and Cat Self, you know, all neo pronouns people go by. Uh, where they just make it up. I, I think you'll be in for a world of hurt. Well, you all, you're listening to the Andrew Cooperwriter Show. Of course, I'm your host, Andrew Cooperwriter. As always, you can reach out to the show by emailing info at theandrewshow.com. Once again, that's info at theandrewshow.com. You can catch it every Monday through Friday at 9 a.m. right here on WZXI. You can also catch, uh, if you miss it at 9 a.m. on WZXI, you can also catch it at 1 p.m. everywhere else on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, Rumble, as well as all major podcasting platforms, you can always head on over to theandrewshow.com. Once again, that's theandrewshow.com for pretty much all the information I just gave you. If you forget it and you're like, oh man, I want to email Andrew. I want to say something to him. I want to check out old episodes. I want us to do those things. Just head on over to theandrewshow.com and you'll find links and everything you need and even a contact form for if you want to reach out to the show. In fact, uh, one of today's stories was actually sent to me, emailed over to me as a suggestion from a listener. So I encourage you all to do the same thing. You see funny stories or different stories or political stories or something you think needs to be covered, send it 
on over. Of course, today, the big issue, big story going on is the train derailment in Rock Castle County from CSX. Um, you know, it would seem uh, as as I'm recording this, or at least yesterday, uh, there was a fire burning at the crash site uh, going on. It, it appears to be a 16, at least 16 cars derailed there uh, north of Livingston. Um, that included two molten sulfur cars that have uh, uh, been breached and lost some of their contents. And and yesterday there, that was on fire, could still be burning today. Um, you know, obviously that's a big deal. Bashir has declared a state of emergency. Areas have uh, been evacuated as the cleanup goes on. And, you know, you've been seeing these train derailments on the news, I think a little bit more recently, but I think that's just partially because the news is covering it. Um, ever since the, uh, was it that East Palestine derailment in Ohio that was big, I think people just started covering train derailments more because a friend of mine actually works at CSX and I haven't talked to him in some time, but while he was working there, I was aghast to find out just how often trains actually do derail. Um, they derail constantly. Just most of the time there's no people around. It's not near anybody's houses. They're not carrying hazardous materials. Uh, and so it's really not a big deal or containers aren't breached. And so it just really doesn't become an issue and you don't hear about it. Um, and so, and, and I think that's part of why the coverage recently, it, it's just been more, a little more sensationalized, but obviously we hope everybody in that area, uh, we've got a speedy cleanup, can get back into their homes, uh, so on and so forth. On the subject though of Bashir, uh, he's facing down an ethics complaint right now. Uh, the foundation for accountability and civic trust, uh, filed an ethics complaint with the, um, Kentucky Executive Board Ethics Commission uh, due to his use of state resources for political purposes. And what they're pointing to is a specific event that he held uh, in October, towards the end of October, where, of course, he was doing one of these check signing ceremonies, which, of, of course, is political in and of themselves. It's so funny that uh, we know these are political, right? So Bashir comes into town. He's got money for something. In this case, it was a water system. He's got money for something he wants to give away. And so he's going to act like you won the lottery. He's going he's gonna to give you a big old check coming from the desk of the governor with his signature on it and hand you a couple million to deal with your sewer problem, handing you tax dollars that they've taken from people in your area in the first place. And of course, he's signing the check, big old check, like it's from him. But of course, it's actually from you and I, the taxpayer. But what do we expect from Democrats? They don't actually, they look at your money as their money. It's their money spent. They did something nice for you. By using tax dollars to do the basic things government should be doing, infrastructure, when the few things most of us agree that government should do. So, of course, it's always one of the last things to get the money. But during this event, while he's handing out this cashola, spending, of course, our taxpayer funds, not just to hand out the check, but have the event as you have to pay for security, time off, the rental, everything else. Apparently, he had some campaign signs behind him on the stage. And uh, that was a step too far. That's where the line was drawn. Not the millions, of course, spent uh, giving out for purely political purposes. Who knows how much they actually needed? I'm sure they actually need the money, but not to mention the tens of thousands spent to put on that event. That's not purely political. Of course, it wasn't until you throw in the campaign sign. And obviously, 
I think this is ridiculous. But I, I mean, you know, when we come into people talk about the incumbent effect. What does being an incumbent help with? Well, this is one thing being an incumbent helps with. You get all kinds of free press time and event time because if Cameron wanted to hold an event in your community, well, his campaign would have had to have generally paid for it unless, of course, he was doing an event as the attorney general. So if, if somebody wasn't a current office holder and they wanted to hold an event in your community, they got to pay for it completely. If they just want FaceTime, they just want to say they were there make some headlines in the newspaper, they're going to have to dole out some cash from the campaign account. Now, Bashir, he gets to use tax dollars to put on the event, tax dollars to grab the headlines, saving the money from the campaign. But that's not the only thing these current office holders do. They all do this. It's it's unfortunate, but they all do it. Every single office holder, they'll have some of their staff. Everybody, some of their staff is appointed. They're, they're political appointees. They're there through a political process, right? They were chosen by the person who holds the office. And it's it, whether it's an unspoken, what have you, but they're getting a, a salary, of course, to make sure that the person they're working for looks good. But then also come campaign time, the person they report to is, of course, the office holder. Well, come campaign time, uh, they quote-unquote volunteer on their... Uh, boss's campaign volunteer and end up driving them around and accompanying them to everything, basically managing their schedules, doing all the stuff that campaign staff would do, but that's volunteer. Meanwhile, they're still getting paid a salary by you and I, the taxpayer, but who's in charge of making sure he's fulfilling his job duties? Well, the person who he's volunteering from. So what the office holder does, and everybody does this, literally on the primary trail, it didn't matter if it's Quarles, Cameron, uh, Ball, Adams, um, you know, uh, um, Harmon, it didn't matter who it was. If they were a current office holder, Rand did it while he's running for office. If he's a current office holder, his actual volunteer, his, his actual staff being paid a salary by us, the taxpayers, is quote unquote volunteering and just somehow their volunteer hours happen to be almost like another full-time job or a full-time job. And they're volunteering in the middle of work days. I mean, this is just something they do. This is what it is. This is the incumbent effect. They get to use our funds to create those headlines and further themselves. So he's facing down that ethics complaint. Well, coming up after this, we got some more scaling back on Ford's part when it comes to the Ford battery plant uh, in, in, their Ford battery plant, sorry, investments all across the nation. We'll be talking about that after this short break. You're listening to the Andrew Cooperator Show, your source for Kentucky politics. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. And you are back with the Andrew Cooperwriter Show, your source for Kentucky politics. Welcome back, everybody. You know, before the break, um, I'd gone over some of the uh, Andy Bashir ethics complaints and issues there using taxpayer funds to forge yourself politically. And well, if we have a greater example of that than the Ford battery plant, for those of you unaware, those of you who haven't listened to the show uh, at all, 
before. Um, you know, my feelings on this Ford battery plant are not very positive. In fact, I'm one of the few people in politics willing to call it what it is, a scam, a farce, a misuse of taxpayer funds. You see, what happened was, is in during 2021, during the COVID uh, pandemic, our state legislators and Bashir came together to call a special session that we thought was, of course, to deal with the pandemic. Well, according to Bashir, of course, what he said during uh, the debates this year, that was called specifically for Ford to hammer this deal out for Ford's battery plant. And at the time the vote took place, the vast majority of the legislators, other than a few members of leadership, had no idea who they were voting to give money to. That's right. Your legislator, most likely, because there's only a few that abstained and a few that voted no, your legislator, most likely voted yes to give $410 million to a company, to a private company. So $410 million, $410 million, almost half a billion, your dollars, to a company, private company, to build they didn't know what. That's right. They had no idea what they were building. And then they find out after the fact, well, it's a Ford battery plant. And we're supposed to celebrate this. Bashir ran on this as a main cornerstone idea. Now, first, if I was a legislator, I'd never be voting to, to give money to I don't know who. We're talking about 410 million clams here. That's big money. Those are my constituents' dollars. I need feedback from them before I can take that vote. I'm here to represent them, not represent you, Ford. I'm here to represent my voters. And how could I possibly be properly representing my district if I don't know even who I'm giving the money to? Now, if you're me, you would never vote to give any kind of money to private companies like this because it's wrong. The government doesn't need to be investing in this way. That This isn't investments. The government doesn't make a return on investment. We're going to go into why the government shouldn't invest as we take a deeper look here. Because, of course, these idiots bought this hook, line, and sinker. Now, from the start, I was calling this out as a bad investment. It looks like it's just getting worse. We've had nothing but bad news. I hope in the end this does work out. But it's been nothing but bad news. And But what do you expect Giving $410 million to you don't know who is a legislator, it's probably not going to turn out very great in the long run, will it? But anyways, so what's the news? What's been the problem? Why is this coming up now? Well, Ford has said that they're slowing, uh, that due to slowing electric vehicle sales and surprise, surprise, labor costs, those of you who've been following the show through the UAW labor dispute, as I've talked about that, I've pointed to that saying that that will affect Ford's ability to follow through on their commitments. If they commit, as they did, to unionizing electric vehicle plants, they will not be able to compete with Tesla. Tesla makes too much per vehicle and they're not unionized. That's part of the reason why we're seeing people going after Elon Musk and Tesla so much. They're trying to get more lefties in there so they can get it unionized because right now it means a lot of other people can't compete. But anyways, what's Ford saying? Well, they're saying they've they already delayed the building of that factory. Surprise, surprise. Something they did here in Kentucky too. They've decided to not build or delay the building of one of their factories here in Kentucky. They had two factories right next to each other, delaying one, building the other. 
And they're going to scale back now in Michigan, their plant. So they delayed it. Now they're scaling it back to being uh, 2,500 employees hired to 1,700. And they're expecting the annual battery cell output will drop from 400,000 vehicles per year. That's how much batteries they're hoping to make for to only 230,000, almost half. Citing, of course, slow growth and labor costs. Surprise, surprise, right? Are you real surprised? Well, it's not particularly surprising. Like I said, they've delayed the growth, the building here. It won't be long until they start putting down those number of jobs amounts till finally that 410 million, which by the way, we already gave them 250 million in cash. Well, it looks like an even worse investment than before. I remember when I was running for office state treasurer, I'd bring this up and I say, look, this isn't what government should be doing. It's a bad investment to begin with. And it's just not what government should be doing. And I was told by a few people, hey, stop talking about that. People love the battery plant, everything else. It's a bad deal. People love the battery plant because they don't realize that 410 million of their dollars were given to it secretly. As soon as they find that out, every single normal, rational thinking conservative, especially, loses their minds. How could our government do this, they say? Well, they do it because they hate you, one. And two, they're not actually very intelligent. Right away, I called this out. Why is it? Because I know about companies like a Patera, like Fisker, like Coda, electric vehicle manufacturers who failed until Tesla came along, until Elon Musk came along to Tesla more specifically, because Tesla was also failing, completely failing. It was on its way to bankruptcy like every other electric vehicle manufacturer out there. And then Elon Musk came along and turned it into the most profitable vehicle manufacturing company on the planet. But everybody else is trying to repeat this now. They're trying to repeat what Tesla did, not realizing that Tesla was an offshoot. Any kind of study of what happens, you would know that electric vehicle have 100% failed up until Tesla. Now, at the same time that these dummies in our legislator and Bashir, who once again isn't exactly an expert in investments, decided to dump $410 million into electric vehicles. Well, this is the same time that, uh, surprise, surprise, the stock market was skyrocketing right around November of 2021, right when we had the same vote. You saw companies like Lucid Motors hitting a high stock price of $55.21. Rivian, $130. Neo, $61.95. Polestar was $5.46 a share. Now where do those companies sit? Lucid, $4.20. It fell from $55.21 to only $4.20. Rivian, fell from 130 a share to now sitting at just $15.98. Neo, a high at that time, the same time we decided to invest your 410 million, Neo was sitting at about $61.95. Now it's $7.47. And Polestar is just worth pennies, was worth $5.46, now worth less than a dollar. That's the story of all of them. Because 
that is a Tesla with Elon Musk is, I don't want to call it exactly a moonshot, but it's an anomaly. Up until then, everybody else has failed. It's a bad investment, generally speaking. But you saw these companies peaking. Oh, it's all great. Yeah, this is the investment attitude. Well, let's go ahead and dump $410 million of Kentucky taxpayers' money into this amazing investment. Now everything is going bust. And it's dropping. Because when all these people threw in, well, this all this excitement when electric vehicles future, well, they that was when Tesla was peaking at 407 a share. Now it's down to around 250 a share. But it was providing massive returns for the people when Tesla was 4, 407 a share. Well, it was massive returns if you bought in at 50 a share just, a, what, two years ago. But Tesla succeeded. Other companies didn't because the market was small. Tesla offered something that other people couldn't. People latched onto it. Electric vehicles is growing. Don't get me wrong. But it's it's this is a new venture. You see, this was the mistake that Bashir and our le leadership made. They heard Ford and said, let's give them $410 million. This is a sure thing. What they didn't realize is they weren't investing in Ford, though. They were investing in a venture. This was a startup in an area that has been historically 99% failure. We didn't just invest $410 million with Ford. Ford's a great backer. But we actually invested, as a state, $410 million into a moonshot startup. Now, anybody who invests in startups would tell you, that the idea is, is you invest early on in a few at low amounts in hopes that one day they go public and you can cash out. You invest in, you know, maybe 50 in hopes one succeeds and you earn back all the money you invested in all those 50. But it's a gamble. And you certainly need expertise and people who are experts in startups to even begin to see what would make something successful. But that isn't what they did. No, they didn't recognize it as a startup. It's Ford. It's been around forever. Yeah, sure, this is something new. Everybody's failed in. But let's go ahead and invest all of that taxpayer dough right here into this uh, uh, big old chance that this would happen. Chance this would happen. Well, old crime family Lundergan's Back on the scene, we're seeing them shucking and jiving again, getting money out of uh, governments all over the state. We'll be talking about that after this short break. You're listening to the Andrew Cooperator Show, your source for Kentucky politics. Remember, you can reach out to the show, info at theandrewshow.com. Once again, that's info at theandrewshow.com. We'll see you back here in just a few, few short minutes. And you are back with the Andrew Cooper Writer Show, your source for Kentucky politics. For the break, I was talking about the Ford plant just going, uh, looking at bad news out of Ford up in Michigan, wondering if we're going to have some more bad news than what we've already gotten from the Ford plant here in Kentucky. Just pointing out how incompetent our people and government are, and yet yet they still are foolhardy enough to believe that they can choose, pick and choose what companies to give money to, uh, to invest our money to invest. In this case, like I said, $410 million to Ford. 
And you know, if if Cameron had a little bit of gumption, uh, he would have went after Bashir Ford. Of course, he would have risked upsetting the uniparty types that are there in the legislature because, of course, they voted for it too. They said, okay, just as misguided as Bashir. It's not all Bashir's fault. If this Ford deal ends up going fully bust, it's already busted a bit. They've already had to adjust down and slow down and say, look, we're probably not going to hire as many people as we thought. And well, we're going to slow the building of this factory. Now they've already done that. And of course, if that happens, will we get an apology? Nope, we won't. I mean, you know, as I said, your legislator most likely voted for this. And if your legislator did, I want you to ask them, do they regret it at all? Do they regret it at all? I don't think they do. I really don't think they do. Well, I also mentioned that the Lundergan crime families back on the scene. You may remember, of course, you got Jerry Lundergan, former, uh, I believe, state house rep and convict. And um, you also have uh, former Secretary of State Allison Lunderman, Lundergan Grimes. Sorry. Um, and Allison was, of course, known for being a very corrupt secretary of state, famously uh, overinflating our voter rolls to the point that we had federal courts get involved saying we had to remove people off our voter rolls because they were so badly inflated. She ran uh, the, the, the office so horribly in elections so badly. She was the secretary of state was removed from the board of elections for the state wasn't put back on until after she left office. Um, she quite frankly just didn't know what she was doing. Well, despite the fact she was a complete and utter failure in the office of Secretary of State, she still decided to take a run at Mitch McConnell uh, a few years ago. And in that run against Mitch McConnell, uh, her father, Jerry Lundergan, uh, former, like I said, state house rep and CEO at Emergency Disaster Services, as well as the Lundergan Group, he, uh, well, he decided he was going to hop in there and uh, illegally funnel money to his daughter's campaign. So he illegally funneled uh, money from one of his companies into his daughter's campaign, and he was caught doing it. And he was found guilty and sentenced to uh, right around about two years in jail. And well, uh, during, of course, the um, COVID fiasco. He asked to be released from jail, citing his health and risk of COVID of being stuck in jail. And uh, a judge, Tate and Hoven was the judge on that to make a ruling on that. He made a ruling and sealed it. So I don't know if old Jerry, mob boss Lundergan got out uh, because of COVID or if he got out um, because he just served out his sentence because he would have gotten out of what I think like May of this year would have been when he served out his sentence. So anyways, so he's back on the scene. Now, you may also remember emergency disaster services and old Jerry Lundergan from, of course, the COVID response. You may remember that the University of Kentucky set up a field hospital costing the taxpayers $6 million, $6 million inside of the Nutter Field House there, the practice facility right next to the Commonwealth Stadium for the football. They've got a, another indoor football stadium there on the other side for, for the players to practice. And, and he set up 
a field hospital there. UK did. And of course, they gave that contract to Emergency Disaster Services, Jerry Lundergan's company. $6 million. Now, did a single person spend a single day in that bed? Nope. Was that uh, field hospital used at all? Absolutely not. And what's weird is the structure was already there. I don't know everything, of course, that they provided, but $6 million to, I guess they rented everything from Jerry and the emergency disaster services and spent $6 million doing it. That seems like a lot of money, a lot more than we would expect for them to spend on such a thing. But he's back where you see over uh, the week or last week or so, the city of Lexington announced they would be setting up warming shelters for the uh, homeless around Lexington at the Hope Center and other places. Apparently, we don't have enough beds for the homeless that decide they want to live indoors during the cold months. Um, and so they set up these warming locations. They also set up kitchens and places to feed them. And up on stage while they're announcing it is old sneaky Jerry sitting back there behind them, obviously up there because it appears that the city has given him the contract for setting up these uh, tents and these warming centers for the homeless. Now, is there nobody else that they could choose from? Apparently not. Apparently, there's only one emergency disaster relief company in the world. And apparently, it's emergency disaster services owned by convicted criminal Jerry Lunderkin that they just have to keep using. Now, what's funny is, is and, and some of you may look at it and say, wow, they're wasting this money, setting this up for the homeless. Is it used? Is it not used? Is this a good expenditure of money? The thought process here is this. So every year when it does dip below freezing, you, the taxpayer pays to put up homeless people in hotel rooms. And over the years, that expense has gotten more and more. It's gotten uh, uh, more of obviously expensive of a thing to get done. And not all hotels are willing to participate for obvious reasons that, um, you know, these people don't exactly respect the things around them. So instead this year, instead of the hotel rooms, they're attempting to set up these tents, which could save money overall. I don't know. I, you know, and that goes into, and earlier this week, I was talking about the homeless problem because we continue to allow these people to live on the street because we're unwilling to do anything while at the same time we're required if people travel into our area, vagrants, they're not even from Lexington. They've just traveled here because, well, we're so welcoming. We've got our needle exchanges, food programs, tents, places to sleep. We've done all that, so much so to the point that they just feel like, hey, they're open arms there in Lexington. Let's go there. Now they show up, and guess what? It's now our problem to deal with. It's you spending your money to keep these people housed, to keep these people uh, uh, alive. Is there any requirement uh, for them? Now, I'm, I'm not saying it's a bad thing. I understand that you may personally want to give to these things, but the problem is, is like I said, are these people from Kentucky? Are these even Kentuckians? Have these people ever contributed to our society? It almost likely not. And so it becomes a question of when do we, when is tough love at a point where we need to say, okay, we understand we're here to, to make sure you don't die because all life has value, but you need to start taking care of yourself. 
When do we have those conversations with them? When are they faced with that hard, hard choice? Instead, we continue to enable them to live this way and continue to enable them to make the easy choices of just living on the street because they have an addiction or what have you. And people want to blame mental health problems. And I hear you. I bet you some of them do have some real debilitating mental health problems. But let's not pretend like there's not treatment available for that either. And we as a society have got to step in because this just keeps costing us more and more money. It just keeps costing us more and more. Well, we're hitting up on the break right now. Remember, you can reach out to The Andrew Show by emailing info at theandrewshow.com. Once again, that's info at theandrewshow.com. If you want to reach out, give out uh, uh, your opinions and feelings on that. Otherwise, we'll be back here in just a few short minutes after this break. And you are back with The Andrew Cooper Writer Show, your source for Kentucky politics. I'd mentioned this in passing, I think maybe last week or so. I didn't have time to cover it at that time, but there was this op-ed in the Herald Leader wrote by Rich Gimmel, Jan Scavdahl, and Caleb O'Brown. Now, I do know uh, several of those authors of this op-ed, so, you know, and they're good people. So if I'm to be honest, I'm already coming into this expecting them to make a very great point, and they certainly, certainly do. They're, they're writing about of course, the governor's election that occurred and writing about a peculiar, peculiar, <laughs> geez, do I speak English, Andrew? I wonder sometimes. A peculiar thing that Daniel Cameron did during the campaign, and he ran away from vouchers. He ran away from educational choice. He ran away from talking about it, which seemed odd. Quoting now from the article, this is what they started off by saying. They said, Kentucky politicos will spend the coming weeks trying to understand how a Trump endorsed Mitch McConnell favored Republican managed to lose the governor's race in a state that is quickly trending to toward the GOP. And all those post-election reflections, one fact should stand out. Daniel Cameron could have made his support for educational freedom an inspiring centerpiece of his education reform agenda. In choosing not to do so, he failed to speak up for Kentucky parents who are demanding robust learning options for their children. For those of us who trust Kentucky parents to take ownership of their children's education, this is baffling. School choice is very popular in Kentucky and increasingly so, and they're not wrong here. I mean, for some reason, he ran away from it because he's afraid of the teachers, afraid of the schools. But when you look at somewhere like Louisville, somewhere that overperformed for Bashir compared to four years ago, they're having massive school issues. A place where you were hoping to earn some votes over from Bashir, especially if you wanted to hold him off and if you wanted to take him on, you taking some of those votes out of Jefferson County and putting him on the spot about school choice at this time when there were so many issues going on in the school would have done so. Not Cameron, but Cameron's PACs, the PACs that were supporting Cameron without coordinating with the Cameron campaign, were, were going after Bashir on the school issues, the school issues in JCPS. And then Bashir's campaign was going after Republicans in the legislature over the failures of JCPS. But Cameron himself, the Cameron campaign, didn't use these failures at all to point to why we need to try something different, why we need to take a good hard look at school choice. Instead, he ran away from it like his hair was on fire. And it is very popular, especially in areas where Bashir carried. 
putting Bashir on the spot about it. If I was running for governor, I'd be putting Bashir on the spot about why he doesn't support school choice despite the abject failures going on in school systems like Jefferson County Public Schools. I mean, remember, you had the busing issue going on. You had educational attendance issue coming to light at that time. You had, um, uh, uh, you know, the spending them claiming they just need more money while well, they're spending over 20 grand per student in their budget, over 20 grand per student in their budget. And, and it gets overwhelming support. I mean, this is from the article, right? They're quoting a 2019 Mason Dixon poll. And this is before COVID. This is before the shutdown. And it already created a divide, more of a divide between schools. This is before CRT. This is before a lot of the failures we see in Jefferson County. But this is what it says. A resounding 74% of voters said yes to school choice. This was the question. Generally speaking, would you say you support or oppose the concept of school choice? 74% of voters said yes. Only 20% said no. Even in Louisville and Lexington, support for school choice was 69%. This was taken before COVID. This was taken before the issues happened in Louisville. Article goes on to say, in 2021, Kentucky's neighbor to the east, West Virginia, went all in and delivering more educational options for families by adopting the HOPE Scholarship, one of the most inclusive and expansive educational freedom programs in the country. That program has delivered new options to hundreds of thousands of students there. New opportunities for schooling have dramatically expanded in West Virginia in just the last two years. More broadly, surveys indicate that parent satisfaction with their kids' education is higher when parents have robust choice. And that's right. When they feel like they're stuck in only the public school system, the parents themselves feel more unhappy. They are more satisfied. Even if they choose the same school that they would have had to have picked if there wasn't school choice or would have been forced upon them, if there wasn't school choice, they still feel more satisfied if they have choice because they've chosen it. It also gets them in turn then more involved in the education, as I've said priorly, there's good arguments in rural areas against school choice. There is. Because, of course, you worry that if people take their kids out of the area, you got rural areas where there may not be another school that comes in with a choice. How will they educate the kids that they have to at the public school system there if they don't have funding? But one, that is a conversation to have and look at how do we address that problem, that situation. But two, it shouldn't be based upon the idea that you get to hold kids in your community captive or hostage. But by denying them options, hopefully you're providing a high quality school and people decide they do want to still use you, of course, put you a little bit more in competition. But anyways, so they, they're more excited when they have choices. But the article goes on to say, whether the chief concerns for parents are test scores, safety, sports teams, religious values, or any other dimensions along which parents regularly make choices on behalf of their children, educational freedom delivers. And the people who want to leave that power with the parents are regularly rewarded at the ballot box. True. Goes on to say, but in debate after debate, Cameron refused to lend his voice to struggling Kentucky families unwilling to make the simple case for school choice. Cameron allowed his opponent to mischaracterize both Cameron's support for expanded learning opportunities for kids and the issue of school choice more generally. 
Cameron's case could have been straightforward. I want parents to be in charge of their child's education. That's simple. That's straightforward. It's hard to argue with. Bashir would have struggled with that. What would he have said? No, you can't trust parents. Kids belong to the public school system. Remember, in Virginia, that's what Glenn Youngkin's opponent said. Said parents didn't belong in the education of a child. And how did the voters reward that at the ballot box? Coming out on this education issue, instead of being mamby-pamby silent about it, like Cameron was, he could have put Bashir in the same position, challenging him in the same way that Glenn Youngkin challenged his opponent in Virginia, something that led to his demise. Having Bashir on the record admitting that he doesn't believe parents should be in charge of education would have been great for the campaign, but instead of standing strong on school choice and putting Bashir in the position that he had to respond for that, Cameron backed down. He backed down. During the primary, he said he was for it. We knew he was for it. I don't understand why he backed down. I don't understand why he decided not to talk about it unless, once again, they were gun-shy about the teacher's issues during Bevan, not realizing it's different now than it was in November of 2019, as far as that goes, not realizing that even people in rural areas understand that educational choice could be good and understand that, look, you know, our rural areas may get a choice or two, may not, and we can create a plan that addresses those concerns about, because in many counties, the schools are the largest employer. And so we definitely have to address that concern. Article goes on to say, while Kentuckians agree that most important educational decisions should rest with the parents, Cameron couldn't bring himself to state that basic fact in public, and it's likely this failure cost him crucial votes. It's not just likely, it did. It did. You know, every state that touches our commonwealth has some sort of educational tro choice program. We're surrounded by states that allow school choice. Kentucky's on like an island. And yet despite this, and despite that working in these other states, despite the fact we see climbing test scores in those areas still not very great. And despite the fact that we see even climbing uh, uh, compensation packages for teachers in that area, not going to pretend it's amazing, but climbing, we can't adopt that here in Kentucky. It leaves you asking quite a lot of questions. It really does. Why didn't Cameron come out and support school choice? Why did he run away from vouchers in the general? It will be one of those questions that leaves me scratching my head and apparently other conservatives all across the state scratching our heads for times to come. Well, y'all, that's what we have time for today on the Andrew Cooperwriter Show. I hope you're having a great Black Friday out there, getting your shopping, getting your deals done. I hope it's an amazing day for you. Thanks for listening. We'll be back here Monday with another episode of the Andrew Cooperwriter Show at 9 a.m. Y'all have a great rest of your day and your weekend. We'll see you soon.